Hello, this is Alex Granados, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today, I am sitting at the Belk Foundation with Johanna Anderson, the Executive Director of the Belk Foundation, and we are going to talk about the teacher pipeline. Johanna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. So tell me how you first got interested in the teacher pipeline issue. The Belk Foundation is a family foundation, and we invest solely in public education, uh, specifically early grade achievement and great public school teachers and leaders. So we've been studying this issue for several years, um, specifically about four years ago when we decided to narrow down in those two focus areas. And so you don't have to go too much into specifics, but what is the problem we're facing here in North Carolina? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I don't think it's unique to North Carolina, so let me let me state that. Uh, but I do think that the way that we are recognizing, developing, and retaining our teacher workforce uh, is unique. We are making a lot of decisions right now at both the state and local lo- level that's that's affecting the way that we're uh, enticing folks into the profession and nurturing and sustaining those professionals to do their best work now. And so at a baseline, when we were talking about the teacher pipeline for people who don't know exactly sure. what that means, that basically means North Carolina has a certain amount of demand for teachers, a certain amount of you know classrooms that have to be filled with teachers and that sort of thing. The teacher pipeline are the students that are going into educator preparation programs to be trained to be teachers. Mm-hmm. And the problem in North Carolina and in many other states is that the demand is higher than the supply coming in. So essentially, we end up with a shortage of teachers. Is that accurate? It is. Well, and let me say that I think there are um, there are nuances to that pipeline, right? So we have overages in some subject areas and interest in certain types of school climates than we do where there's really high need in subjects such as special education and higher level um, science and math in high school. So um, I would say it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pipeline with, with various needs coming in and out of. And uh, that's interesting because we saw this session, the General Assembly um, introduced a revamped version of the Teaching Fellows mm-hmm. Program. And in their revamped version, students can get scholarships if they're going to specialize in some of these areas you mentioned, math, Mm -hmm. science, uh, special education, that sort of thing. Right, right. And what I I love about this revamp, um, not only, you know, bringing back a a hallmark signature investment in teachers that, that we've had for years, but doing it in a way that really appeals to current needs. And there's this, the scholarship, you know, we know rising costs for higher ed. Uh, so this is very important to, you know, sustainably attract top folks into the profession. But uh, I think this whole process of within high school, having college counselors identify promising teacher candidates in the high school years and saying, you know, coming up to them and saying, I think you have what it takes to be a teacher. That's really powerful. Uh, I, I was just reading some study that showed they looked at um, freshmen in high school and asked them what careers they might be interested in. And over half named education. But by the time they got to the senior year, it was down to 5%. Hmm. And so something's happening across that high school experience where students are either getting turned on to other careers, and that's great or getting perhaps turned off from teaching. And I think we need to figure out at that end of the early stage of the pipeline, 
how we can bring bright, talented folks into considering the teaching profession. And uh, this next question might get at some of that, it might not, but uh, you were mentioning to me that last summer you kind of did a tour to yeah. uh, talk to stakeholders about the teacher pipeline and kind of get a better picture of it. Um, tell, me, tell me what that tour was about. Sure. Well, I, what I wanted to understand that uh, the foundation has been funding more at district level, especially here in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, and we have a growing interest in the connection, of course, with state level systems and policies on the specifically on the teaching workforce. And so I wanted to better understand the, the players and the general themes, the concerns and constraints that folks who were part of the, the system, either on the preparation side or in developing and retaining at the district level, um, what they were seeing as challenges and opportunities. And met with about a dozen folks um, from various institutions. And when it came to kind of understanding this front end, you know, one question that I really liked asking, but I, I'm not sure if anyone really nailed it, was how do we need to adapt the profession to appeal to the millennial workforce? Hmm. And I, I think some folks kind of talked around it, but most of the people that I were, was speaking with, they were, you know, in their 50s, maybe 60s, and and really understanding this millennial workforce seemed a little foreign. So I, I think that's an interesting conversation for us to have and, and go a little bit deeper on. Well, it's interesting, and it's kind of a perennial question these days. Mm. Lots of industries are wondering what they need to right. do to attract millennials and keep them happy in the job because millennials are used to switching jobs a lot more often Absolutely. than I, I guess my parents did because I in my generation has to switch jobs pretty often too. Um, but um, you said they talked around it. Did they have any good ideas that you took away from that? Well, uh, you know, one thing that they, they recognized is that um, millennials, you know, maybe don't want to jump in and out of the profession within education because they know that heading in, but they're really looking for growth and opportunity. And so doing the exact same job, teaching the exact same thing to the exact same number of kids every year um, is going to get old after a couple years. And so looking for ways to really enhance their impact, continue growing, getting challenged, and frankly getting you know recognized for that kind of growth is something that I think they recognize but were at early stages and really figuring out how to how to build that into the system. Mm -hmm. And so during this tour, what are some of the other things you heard from the people you talked with? Well, there was a lot of attention, and this was last summer, mm -hmm. so it's interesting having this you know, before this most recent session. There was a lot of interest in, making, in changing licensure. Uh, we talked with a lot of rural county superintendents who said, you know, we have incredible need right now. We're, we're pulling on, you know, we're close to places where we have retirees, for instance, who you know, were um, scientists and mathematicians, and these are needs that we have in our high schools. We need to get them in. We need to get them in quickly. And it's so much better than having a, a long-term sub. So a lot of interest in um, changes in licensure. There was also on the you know, early teacher preparation side, an acknowledgement that uh, there needed to be more kind of practice-based, hands-on clinical preparation. Hmm. And um, 
interest from the deans and frankly the, the districts themselves in helping colleges of ed bring more direct, uh, meaningful hands-on experience into the preparation process. And so like you said, that was last summer. We just finished the long session of the General Assembly. What did you see during the session um, that related to that either in a positive or a negative way? Yeah, so we saw Bill 599 with several implications to the licensure and, and preparation. Um, you know, if, if implemented well, of course, all of these, it, it comes down to, to implementation. There are some interesting opportunities there that I think will you know, pull our eyes even more so on uh, the effectiveness of programs in um, setting standards for more competency-based um, proof of, of uh, ability. And uh, that's certainly the way that, that preparation is heading. Um, it's not so much about you know, seat time and courses, but it's about um, on the preparation and then also on the professional development side, being able to exhibit those specific skills and abilities. Hmm. And um, were there any other bills this session or any provisions in the budget that you thought touched on this subject? Well, I was, I was pleased to see that the advanced roles pilot um, has was acknowledged and, and was funded not to the full amount, but to a considerable amount. Uh, we are involved in three of the six districts who are currently engaged in that pilot, uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, Edgecombe, and Vance Counties. Um, these are three of the six that are uh, working with opportunity culture. And this is a uh, body of work that we've been funding now for, gosh, year, four or five years, really seeing that it touches frankly, actually all, all pieces along the teacher pipeline um, with a lot of benefits, not only to this career progression for a teacher, but what it means in terms of embedding coaching and support for teachers within a school uh, for alleviating some of the instructional demands of principals and more of a distributed leadership model. And um, there are a lot of implications in this redesign that opportunity culture takes. It requires flexibilities in the way that we compensate teachers and the way that we um, are able to, to be flexible with our uh, class sizes and um, the you know, amount of um, planning time in schools. It really touches everything to do it well. And so it's important for us to try out these pilots and to have some state support in order to do that is really helpful. And I should back up and say, you were talking about SB 599 earlier, and um, for people who don't know, that's a bill that uh, it opens up the educator preparation system in North Carolina to um, schools or programs other than university programs um, that can come in and do educator prep. And those could be private for-profit schools that currently aren't able to operate in North Carolina. But it, it does more than that. It, it kind of revamps the entire system so that all educator preparation programs will be under a commission that kind of sets the rules and regulations for the programs. And it um, you know, also concerns licensure, how te teachers can get licenses, what kind of requirements there are for that. So it's a bill that, that really touches on the system um, at every level. And then you were mentioning the advanced uh, roles pilot, and this is a, a pilot program in these uh, districts that is going, going to 
you know, look for ways to give teachers roles that won't take them out of the classroom, but will give them more opportunity within their schools to, you know, demonstrate leadership and try some new things. And, and this could touch on what you were mentioning with millennials wanting, you know, more opportunities, more growth. This could be the kind of thing that you're talking about that might be attractive to millennials. Absolutely. You know, I think we have this opportunity. Um, there are myriad ways of, of compensating teachers. I think we recognize that differentiated pay has a role and is not going away. Um, but the, you know, the, the bonus structures that, that we've also seen piloted, um, you know, we're not hearing directly from teachers that these are inspiring different performance. And so I think the real promise is not you know, doing away. We, we think that you know, teachers who have incredible uh, impact on student achievement need to be recognized and compensated. But the, the nuance to this is not in a, in a one-time if you do it kind of scenario, but in for, for teachers who are consistently high performers with, with the students they're working with, how do we grow their reach either through teaching even more students or in the way that they can coach and build up other teachers, thereby reaching more students uh, for more compensation. And these, these top, top teachers want to advance in their profession and they want to expand their reach. And the traditional way of doing that took them out of the classroom. It put them on an AP or principal path. And they said, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want to be doing this. The reason I came into teaching was to work with kids. And so the, the promise of opportunity culture and some of these other advanced roles pilots is reimagining a way that a teacher can expand their reach for more pay and stay touching the classroom and, and kids. We talked earlier that, you know, some of the nuances of the teacher pipeline is that there might be, uh, you know, more teachers for certain kinds of areas and not others. And we mentioned, you know, science, math, special education were places where we needed more teachers. It's also the case that there are some areas in the state that teachers would rather teach than others. And so some of the poorer rural districts sometimes, um, you know, have a harder time, even if there were more teachers, getting those teachers to come teach in their districts. Um, is that something that you've been seeing? You said you guys are in Edgecombe County. I know that that, yeah. that is probably an issue there. Yeah, I, I think it is. What was so inspiring, I, I was out there a few weeks ago, visiting with uh, a handful of principals and I, who two of the three had gone through the NELA program, Northeastern Leadership Academy of NC State, and which is just a phenomenal preparation program for school leaders. And I, and I want to talk about school leaders at one point. Um, but I, I think um, what we're seeing as promising with some of these more rural communities, and Edgecombe is a great example of this, is um, how top talent attracts other talent, right? And I'm you know, sorry to see Superintendent Verily moving on, but he's, he's built an incredible community in Edgecombe where um, he has brought in really inspiring principals and teachers are wanting to work for them. It, it's a harder sell. They do not have the same kind of pay. They do not have the same kind of you know, support at the school level um, with resources. But, but top talent attracts top talent, and I think that's a promising strategy there for uh, some more challenging areas. 
Well, and you said you wanted to talk about school leaders, so, so let's talk about them. What, what role do assistant principals, principals, even superintendents play in the teacher pipeline issue? They're enormous. I mean, when you talk with teachers who have left the profession, pay is certainly mentioned, right? I mean, I hear too often, look, look pay is not a top issue. It, it's an important issue, whether you rank it or not. Uh, having, you know, a, a career where you don't have to have the daily stresses of, am I going to be able to support a family off of this? I absolutely understand that. But what you also hear at the top of that list is, I left because I didn't have a supportive principal. I didn't have the administration who understood the challenges of my role and, and worked for me and provided um, the kind of conditions, the environment that I needed to do my craft well and to be able to serve kids. This is incredibly important. Uh, we, you know, we have schools where, we have a structure where principals may have 50 direct reports. That's ridiculous. Show me another profession a sustainable profession where the structure is such that the manager has 50 direct reports. How on earth are they going to give, especially new, you know, struggling teachers, the kind of attention that they need, that, it, that you need from a manager when you're starting off, to feel like you're growing in your profession and you're valued and, and you're getting the kind of regular feedback that you need. So. Um, I think that I, I was glad to see you asked about this most recent session. The increases in principal pay are incredibly important. I also think uh, more investment in the selection and preparation of future school leaders. Uh, there are some fantastic programs in our state. We're, we're really lucky to have that. And, and so the, the more that we can put attention on kind of that top end of the pipeline, so to speak, with principals, I think we'll, we will see investments pay off. You know, and you're talking about the support that principals give to teachers, and there are some people who become principals that kind of have that natural uh, kind of personality to, to lend support, to know how to do that. Right. Uh, but there are others who don't, and that's where principal preparation becomes so important. And, and I feel like this is something that in the last few years has started to get more attention. Do you feel like that's the case? I think so. You know, I, th I think we've seen from... Um, certainly uh, programs currently in the state that have recognized the, the nuanced role that leaders play and that it isn't purely you know, supervisory or managerial, but they're really um, tasked with growing and coaching other adults. And that takes a particular skill set to be able to have that EQ and uh, the experience to, to bring others alongside you and, and help encourage them to grow and improve in their craft. And so a topic that is starting to get more attention in North Carolina and around you know, the country is the idea of equity in education. Mm -hmm. Where, how does that impact the teacher pipeline? Hugely. It, it impacts it in terms of who we are intentionally recruiting into the profession. Uh, we know the incredible impact that having a teacher of color has on not only students of color, but um, Caucasian students as well. And um, so I, uh, you know, one of the investments that the Belk Foundation has made is in a group called Profound Gentlemen, and they work intensely in building a community of male teachers of color where they may be the only male teacher of color in an entire school and have um, 
you know, very unique experience and are benefiting from having a community of others that they can go to for advice and support and, and growing in their profession. Um, there's also a need for us to look even more. We have so much data on and around teachers. Um, just having the data isn't, isn't good enough, right? It's, it's using it and understanding it. And so we've been learning lately about some strong interests that DPI has actually in looking at the distribution of teachers across the state with an equity lens in better understanding where the teachers with particularly high you know, value add scores or performance in the classroom, are they clustering in schools where we have you know, highly um, advantaged kids? Well, they are. You'd think they are, and they are, right? The early evidence tells us, you know, economically disadvantaged kids are two times more likely to have an ineffective teacher than their more affluent peers, and that's a major equity issue, right? I mean, we could close the achievement gap if we could bring more of our highly effective kids, the teachers, to um, to kids who who have huge need. Um, and need to grow more than, than one year in a year's time. And then talking about effective or ineffective teachers, a huge part of what helps the ineffective teachers become effective teachers is professional development. Um, is there enough of that going on in districts around the state? Well, what's enough, right? I think that's an interesting question to explore. Uh, what I like to see in the evolution of professional development is much more embedded coaching. Uh, I've had the experience of observing, I don't know if you've ever seen this, the uh, bug in the ear, real-time coaching. No. Oh, this is fantastic. You've got to see it. Uh, so this happens, I know, in, in a lot of Project Lift schools here in Charlotte, but in other parts across the state where uh, teachers have a little Bluetooth in their ear while they're teaching in the front of the room and a coach is either in the back of the room or virtual watching them and whispering coaching as in real time as that teacher is teaching and it's phenomenal to watch i if you've ever kind of questioned the complexity and the challenge of the teaching profession you've got to watch this coaching session and so they're able to have another set of eyes and get coaching on you know Timmy didn't raise his hands. You, you know, how can you ask that question differently? And they're able to really try out as opposed to doing a full lesson, then sitting down, going over what they could have done differently. Maybe they remember or don't remember everything that happened. So I, I think when we talk about professional development, we all think about this you know, cold conference room and having a rubber chicken lunch um, in between sessions. And what we've found um, as we you know, read more and research is that professional development, shorter, more frequent coaching that's meaningful, relevant specifically to that teacher's needs is where real you know, teacher growth comes from. There, there is a place for the workshop, for, for that content to get out there, right? We're not saying do away with all kinds of conferences and workshops, but if you're really looking for that specific skills-based growth it's from you know, someone who's who is looking at you and giving you coaching in the moment really responsive to your classroom environment 
and uh, more more frequent uh, with more accountability. Well, Johanna, thank you so much for being with us. It's one of my favorite topics. Thank you, Alex. We've been talking with Johanna Anderson, Executive Director of the Belk Foundation. I'm Alex Granados, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>